Comcast Business gives you more for your small business with our new gig speed Wi-Fi plus unlimited data. Ask how to get up to a $750 prepaid card with a qualifying bundle. Ends 12-4-2022. Restrictions apply. Requires new gigabit extra bundle with two-year agreement. Hi, welcome back to Office Chats, a podcast presented by Madam Blue. I'm your host, Valeria, and today's guest is Diana Gerard. Diana is the founder and CEO of Magic Dates, a vegan snack company that takes dates, walnuts, and other natural ingredients and covers them in 100% dark chocolate. In 2021, Diana appeared on Shark Tank, where she made a deal with Kevin O'Leary for $150,000 in exchange for 33 and a third percent of her business. In this episode, I speak with Diana about what inspired her to create Magic Dates, what it was like pitching on Shark Tank, her advice for aspiring entrepreneurs, and much more. Let's get into the show. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about your journey to founding Magic Dates. Can you tell me a little bit about how the idea for your company came to be? Thank you for having me, Valeria. Am I saying your name right? Yes, you are, actually. Most people don't get it right on the first try, but you nailed it. (laughs) Oh, good. I know we roll our R's in Arabic. So thank you so much for having me and letting me chat about, you know, Magic Date. It's something that's such a big part of my life. And so it's always fun to talk about it. I founded Magic Dates in 2017. And the idea for it really was because of my origins and, and where I come from. Um, Food has always been a big part of my life. It's always been a connector. We cooked a lot at home. My mom made like pretty much every meal growing up. So it was a way for us to come together and and kind of meet around the dinner table. And I carried that tradition when I moved on my own to LA when I was 19. And so I've always wanted to be involved somehow in the food space. I just didn't know how because I didn't have any food entrepreneurs in my family. Um, And for some reason, it just wasn't something in my world. And so this came in my path in 2017, and I knew that I wanted to use dates because of my connection to them growing up. We would break our fast during Ramadan, growing up in Syria with a date and a walnut inside of it instead of the pit. And so that was really the point of inspiration for the recipe. And I knew I wanted to just create something that was better for you with no added sugars that really nourished your body. What were you doing when you realized the idea for this company? So I was actually in real estate. Um, I had been doing that for like four to five years, but not feeling very fulfilled and excited about what I was doing. So what were like the first steps you took when you decided to pursue Magic Dates full time? Can you tell me a little bit about what the startup process was like for you? Yeah, so I actually did start up with a partner just because I was on a completely different path at the time. I had actually just taken my LSAT. So out of that feeling of lack of fulfillment in real estate, I just always knew that I wanted to do something that involved social justice. And I wanted to study international human rights law, Um, you know, just being both Syrian and Palestinian myself, this was something that was very just important to me that I was passionate about, just in terms of, you know, being an activist, but I wanted to maybe formalize that and, and, and potentially make that my career. And I took the LSAT and and I would have applied to you know, law schools at the time. Um, it just wasn't the time for it yet. So a friend had approached me to help him develop some uh, vegan recipes for this paleo ice cream sandwich that wasn't vegan at the time. They were using like dairy and eggs and whatnot. 
And so just during that process, it was like a little taste that, and I talk about this on Shark Tank, it was like a little bit of a taste of what this world, you know, can be like. And I just knew that I wanted to start my own company. And so I just listened to that, you know, internal voice, even though I could have been on a different path. So I was at a fork in the road at the time and decided to pursue magic dates with this partner. And eventually he realized that it wasn't something that was suitable for him. Conversely, I realized that it was something I was very excited and suitable um, for. Because it was new to me, there was a lot of research involved in terms of consumer research. So learning about, first of all, other products, customers, because I didn't have my own customers. And I would just literally go to a grocery store and observe people and like see what they were picking up, what their habits were, where they turning the package over. So that was also a meta- method of research. And, and, you know, from there, I decided to develop this product. Were you raising initial funds to get your product off the ground? Or did you already have like some money saved to get you started? What was that bootstrap process like? Yeah, financially, it was very bootstrapped. I had a little bit from having worked in real estate, but primarily it was my husband helping me uh, fund this whole thing. He believed in what it was that I was creating and just realized that I can output my just energy and passions into this project that really transcended, you know, food for me Mm -hmm. really is about using dates as a symbol of cultural connection. And so it has been bootstrapped up until this point. How did you like find where you were going to make the food and package everything? How did you get the first couple of shipments going? Yeah, that's a really good question because that's actually a hard thing to do because you can either do like a shared kitchen type situation or some kind of like cottage license and make this in your kitchen. But our product was really hard to make that way because of the size of the bites and just the amount of like labor that would be involved to create that many bites. And so from the get-go, I knew that I had to find a facility. So a, a, a manufacturer or factory that I would uh, partner with that would make these for me. And they had to also be have low MOQs, which is minimum order quantities. So that's it, it's a really tricky thing to find, to find a factory that has, first of all, all the capabilities you want, and then also where you don't have to produce that much at any given time, especially that it's a perishable item. And so we just didn't want it sitting there on the shelf when I didn't have many customers for it yet. And that process continues, you know, because we did have to find a new co-packer once we outgrew our initial one. And now we're making a switch for for the third time. And hopefully this is a little bit more long-term. I think it's fair to say that the food and snack industry is incredibly competitive. What were some of the roadblocks you encountered bringing magic dates to the market and growing your business? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. (laughs) There's a roadblock at every stage, that's for sure. To your point, when some category or industry is so saturated, how do you stand out? So I think early on, it's figuring out whether or not you're creating something that is actually going to be in demand. Do people want this? There's always the consumer in mind first. So that's why I did the research upfront. It wasn't just that this is what I want to create. This is a family recipe and we'll see how everyone reacts. It was more about what are people looking for? Like, what are are their frustrations in terms of the current snacks and easy packaged foods that are available? And so I realized that it was the refined ingredients, the added sugars, the lack of transparency in in ingredients and process and whatnot. And so that's how we developed this idea of creating something super wholesome and simple. And this was before this like influx of, you know, plant-based snacks. This was all the way in 2016 that I was doing the research. And dates were actually not reused as a hero ingredient at all at the time. 
they were always used as fillers or binders or sweeteners. So there was definitely something unique about what it was that we were creating. That's what's important in the beginning is how do you stand out? How do you differentiate yourself from other products that are on the shelf next to you? For those who are unaware, can you share a little bit about the history and benefits of dates and why they're such a superfood? Oh, sure. I mean, the history can fill like books. I've literally read books about the history. I'd love to talk about how the date palm even came to the U.S. because it's not native to America. Um, There were actually these agriculture exploration expeditions that the U.S. government would send overseas. And it was usually a group of men that would go to different parts of the world to discover different plants and then potentially bring them back here to domesticate them. And so they did that with the palm tree. So there was an agriculture explorer that went to Morocco and brought back 11, it was either nine or 11 shoots of, of palm trees. So you actually don't grow palm trees from a seed, you grow it from a shoot. So you take a little bit of a piece of an existing palm tree and then you plant it. Um, and the reason for that, if you grow a seed, you actually don't know what variety you get. But if you grow a shoot, then you know exactly what variety to get. And then it also just grows much faster that way. So they planted them here in Coachella Valley in Southern California because they found that the climate here was very similar to the climate in Morocco, dry and arid and hot. And the shoots thrived here. And so that's how we have 95% of the American crop is actually grown right here in Coachella Valley. And it's because of these original shoots that came from Morocco. That's so cool that you also ended up in California, just like the date shoots. It's like meant to be. (laughs) It's so funny you say that. Nobody ever makes that connection. And I talk about that all the time. It's sort of like, an immigrant in general, Mm -hmm. like any immigrant who is in their hometown and then they move somewhere else and then they thrive. So it's so symbolic and poetic. Yeah. Every Abrahamic religion talks about the date tree, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they all talk about the date tree, the tree of life, just because of how it has sustained people in the desert. It grows in very harsh environments, very hot, arid climates. And so it develops the skin that has all these pigments and the polyphenols and the vitamins and the minerals. Really, it's the polyphenol, which is which are antioxidants and the fiber. Whenever you enjoy sugar from nature, it comes packaged with all these things. And so your body just processes the sugar much differently. I was actually just listening to a podcast. You might know Andrew Huberman. Huberman Labs. Exactly. Huberman Labs. So super, you know, neuroscience focused, like nutritional biology. And just the biology of sugar is so interesting. It's glucose that the brain absolutely needs. And we know that, right? We know that like brain needs sugar, but he really gets into depth about it. So I geeked out about that a little bit and just kind of related it to dates. I know you talked a little bit about the background of dates on your Shark Tank pitch, just to kind of give an Mm -hmm. overview of what inspired you to create the company. Can you tell me a little bit about when you decided to approach going on Shark Tank for an investment and what your experience pitching on the show was like? You know, with the show, it was my fourth time applying. And I told myself it would be my last time <laughs> applying because it's, you know, a taxing process. It's, it's emotional because you're waiting to hear back. You don't know if it's going to happen or not. And really up until the very end of like seeing your face on the screen, you, you don't even know if your episode's going to air. So your chances get better and better as the process, you know, progresses. But it's not really until we air and we actually did get rescheduled as well, which is very rare. We were only the second episode in Shark Tank history in 13 years to get rescheduled. And so that just kind of gives you an idea of like the 
uh, unknown and the volatility of the process. Yet it was a very organized process from like a production standpoint. So once I applied, it was a little over a year ago at this point, it was April, 2021. I was invited by the producers to just kind of keep moving on with the process. They were awesome. I became friends with the producer. She, she's so incredible. She made the process just so warm and, and fun. And that's something that was surprising for me that such a national production can feel that way. I just made sure I prepared as much as possible to tell our story and to really talk about my connection to dates and my origin story. And that's what I focused on. So I tried as much as possible to not get in my head about, you know, the, the, the feedback and the response and the criticism and anything that might come up. It's hard to do that. And I definitely had a lot of nervousness coming into it in the weeks and months leading up to, but on the day of, and then walking into the tank and actually pitching, I was totally in the zone. I just, I'm like, I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm not projecting myself in the past or, or future. I'm here. And I just fielded all the questions and whatever came my way to my best ability. And I think it, it showed in the presentation that I was just kind of present and feeling good uh, about everything. I think that's one of the things that impressed me the most. I was like, she's just so calm. Like, it felt like you were just talking to people that you already knew. Um, And that's so impressive, especially because you're walking in there with so much information in your brain of like things you need to remember for what what they're going to ask you, not to mention like your entire pitch. So huge congratulations for walking out of the tank with a deal with Kevin O'Leary, actually, who is my favorite shark on the show. How has the outcome of your deal with Kevin benefited your business so far? So, you know, it's amazing. We're actually, we're almost, we haven't inked the, you know, we haven't inked the deal yet. We haven't finalized it yet, yet he's been very generous with his time. So I've just been so, again, pleasantly surprised. I think it's funny because Kevin on the show comes off as the maybe harshest. I mean, he's, you know, the most honest, obviously, and straightforward. Yet in reality, the whole process behind the scenes has been super reasonable and professional, which I appreciate. And so for, for me, even though I joked at the end of the, my segment that he was my second choice, <laughs> he really was, <laughs> he really was somebody who I ultimately, my heart of hearts wanted to work with. Um, and we have like a special connection also just both being Canadian and him being half Lebanese. So I think sometimes you just understand where someone's coming from. So of course we can connect on many other levels and deeper levels, but that was cool. Who was your first choice? So it wasn't that it was my first choice. It's just that I got rescheduled. Um, a couple of times and I was I, I may have had Emma Greed on my panel at some point mm-hmm. who's the founder of Good American mm-hmm. and so that's why I joked about that because I thought she was going to be on my panel and you know her being the connection with the Kardashians I thought it would be really cool so I actually bought the Good American jeans that's what I was wearing on the show and the bodysuit and then I ultimately got rescheduled you know shifted around and and she was no longer on my panel I had an original panel you know an all original Sharks cast and I'm, I'm glad that I ended up making a deal with Mr. Wonderful. I think he gets, the, you know, the space more. He has companies in his portfolio that are, that are in the food space. And he's just a really smart business person. Yeah, he's also very funny. I know. And, that, and, I, and I watched an interview with him recently that really surprised me. Um, just being somebody who seems to have a lot going on. He was talking about the, the balance of having other things in your life actually like somebody who an entrepreneur who has something else going on in their life that is creative that is an endeavor that they focus on that's outside that completely separate from their business and you don't often hear that from entrepreneurs who are at the level that he's he's at you always think it's like oh you know work 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 and it's kind of like toxic workaholic culture Mm -hmm. in a way so I was very impressed 
Um, but that wasn't something he valued. He really valued that balance and and really looking at the whole person and what their other interests are. Yeah, that's so important, right? If because if you don't have those outlets, then like you can't really bring your full brain power to work because you're probably going to be burnt out. Yeah, and that's how creativity thrives. Like when you really look at what creativity means, it's when different parts of your brain are firing off and communicating with each other. And that's that's also where problem solving happens. And so as an entrepreneur, you're always problem solving. And so in my mind, creativity equals problem solving. And, you know, you need to have, you need to step outside your box in essence then. If all you're looking at is your business from this very close range, then you're going to miss a lot of things. And I think when we're engaged in other things, like I love to cook, then certain connections get made that you wouldn't have been able to make on a conscious level. So I, I find that really cool too. So is cooking like one of the ways that you escape from work and just kind of let your brain wander? That and then like being in nature somehow. So living mm-hmm. in LA, we have so many mountains and so many hiking trails. I know that a lot of jokes get made about people hiking in LA. I just remember watching Sex in the City and they would like make fun of that in their LA episode. Mm-hmm, I remember that. <laughs> that everyone's hiking. Um, it's true. Everyone is hiking because it's beautiful weather and we mm-hmm. have mountains. And it's a good way to get your body moving and then be in nature. And so I do that maybe once a week, once every other week, and then a little bit of yoga. So that's been something that I've noticed has been really important for me to feel really good in my body, just kind of feel really present. It's just anytime I'm just in nature, even for a few hours over the weekend. That's so important. I want to touch on just one thing you mentioned really quick. So when you're going into the tank, you don't know until that moment who's on the panel or do they tell you like just a few days before or something like that? I, I do know beforehand. Oh, okay. I do know beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. It, that, that, that part's not, not a surprise. Every The whole conversation is a surprise. The only part that gets rehearsed is that first 90 second pitch mm-hmm. that everyone just has prepared, but everything else is spontaneous. Um, but it's just because I got rescheduled. So I was on the schedule on X day and they're like, this is your panel. And then I got rescheduled another day and now it's this other panel. Got it. And do you get to talk to the other contestants on the show? Not really. Everyone is in their own trailer mm. out, you know, out, outside. And um, there are only a few companies taping at any given moment. So it's not like there are that many people in the studio at the time. But we do get there together on this shuttle. And so, of course, we get to chat a little bit, but it's just not, you're just preparing and you're also in your own zone. And there's so much going on the hours leading up to your, to your taping that you don't have much time. So we did a little bit. I knew who was there and, and just kind of said hi to them and figured out what their business was. And we supported each other, but that was about it. That's cool. Well, I'm sure being a solo entrepreneur comes with so many challenges, but I'm wondering if you had any mentors and this can be like before or after Shark Tank, just like at any time during your career journey. Did you have any mentors or were you a part of any programs that helped you along the way? Definitely. From day one, there was always a mentor along the way. Like I've never not had a mentor. I think that's important for any entrepreneur and specifically to your point, solopreneurs, because it can get it can feel overwhelming. It can get very lonely. And especially that we're a small team. So it's not like I'm, you know, I'm here with 10 people um, shooting ideas because that also really helps with problem solving and creativity. So mentors are so important. So from the beginning, from the moments of inception of the product, even before that, actually, everything I shared with you earlier about the research was something that a mentor shared with me. And it was someone that I just randomly met. I was out in a coffee shop, just kind of working and he overheard a conversation. And he just happened to be an innovation consultant and he just wanted to mentor me like for free. 
from there, it just kind of kept happening. Then I found somebody who was specifically a food, a food consultant slash mentor who I would bounce a lot of ideas off of in regards to packaging and the things I mentioned earlier about co-manufacturing and finding a facility. Um, I ultimately, you know, you do the work and you do the research, but you get that guidance, you know, from someone who's, who's done it before. And then I actually joined the UCLA Venture Accelerator in 2020. UCLA is very close. It's, it's in my backyard. I live in Westwood. And so they accepted me into their program and they offered a lot of mentorship in every aspect of the business. It is a, an industry agnostic accelerator, meaning there were CPG brands like ours, consumer packaged goods, but then also other industries in there. And so it was a bit more of a high level guidance in terms of your presentation, your, you know, your pitches, PR, finance, all these different things. And then the mentors there, you can get more nuanced with them and ask them for specific help on things that you, that you needed. How many people are on your team now? I have one part-time employee that's actually like part of the magic date team. And then I have, and this is very typical for, you know, kind of emerging brands that are a little bit more lean is where you hire contractors to do different things. Mm -hmm. So we work with a digital uh, or a digital marketing person. And then of course our manufacturing facility, and there's about 16 people there that, you know, make the product and just different designers, like packaging designers, asset designers, and the person in-house who's a part-time employee is our content creator and helps with like social media outreach. Um, we're launching a new product, July Ooh. 26. This is my That's exciting. talking about it. Um, I won't say what it is yet, but we'll share more. So she's helping move that project forward as well. Um, it's going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun product. I'm excited to see now. So we have to stay tuned to, should we stay tuned to Instagram or the website? Oh, so Instagram would be the best way to get okay. just up to date. Yeah. Awesome. We touched on this a little bit, but your culture is clearly a big source of inspiration for your business. Can you tell me more about that as well as your company's partnership with the Karam Foundation? For sure. Yeah. So, you know, I shared about, you know, growing up, eat, you know, eating, eating dates. And as you probably know, food is very nostalgic. Food is a very emotional thing. Some of my best memories have always been around food. That's the aspect I wanted to bring to Magic Dates is to use this beautiful fruit as a way for us to communicate and really learn about each other's cultures, but really reclaiming that narrative of the Middle East, because we don't see a lot of positive associations and, you know, like beauty and food and culture and, and all the richness that actually comes from the Middle East. It tends to be just the headlines that are very jarring and, and violent. And there's just a lot more <laughs> to the Middle East than that. It was the cradle of civilization, especially the city where I come from, Damascus. You know, if you're on our email list, for example, you'll see that we start sharing stories about the city I'm from, or even on Instagram, uh, just very like specific neighborhoods and just really the diversity that, that, that we have there. We share recipes, things that I grew up with. There's so many ingredients that are so popular now in the West, like zatar and chickpeas. And those are very much indigenous ingredients to the Middle Eastern region. And so it's cool to learn about, first of all, the variations amongst the region, because the Middle East and North Africa is so big. There's like, I think, 23 countries. And it's, it's the Middle East is such a general category. Yet when you get nuanced, you realize that even though people in Morocco and Syria both speak Arabic, there's actually just such a diversity within, within those cultures. Um, so that's what we know. We're in the infancy of really uh, developing those programs, but that's the intention. I, I didn't talk about Keram Foundation yet. You asked about them earlier. So I'd love to share a little more about them. So Keram actually means generosity in Arabic. It is a 
Syrian woman who founded this nonprofit. They're based in Chicago. It's been around for over 10 years since even before the civil war in Syria started, but their work became so much more important. So they help build and support um, refugees on their journey really to safety and freedom after the Syrian civil war, particularly young people and the youth. So they have this beautiful um, like, like structure actually, it's called Kerem House in South Turkey, which is very close to the largest Syrian refugee camp that has about 80,000 people. And they just do a lot of programming that helps develop the youth's dreams and ideas and skills because they are the leaders of the future. And they have this uh, wonderful program called The Journey where they're basically developing the leaders of the future that you can learn more about on their website, keremfoundation.org. And so it was so meaningful to me from day one, like our first year in business, I reached out to them. And I actually remember signing my agreement with them on my birthday, which is July 26th, because that was a, a gift to myself, I considered just to be able to partner with them and commit myself to supporting their mission as we grow with Magic Day. And can you tell me a little bit more about like why that was important to you? Like why you knew from the start that you wanted to partner with an organization like that? Oh, sure. So, you know, being Syrian, you know, first of all, I, I lived in Syria till I was 12 years old. And I visited one more time after that when I was 19. So I have not been there in a long time. And it's still very surreal that things may not look the same way as when I left them. And another thing is they also have Palestinian. And so on my Palestinian side, um, my, my father's family, they were refugees out of Palestine in 1948. And I had refugee status till I was 11, till I left Syria actually, because as Palestinians in Syria, we weren't granted citizenship. We were able to live there and my entire dad's side of the family still lives there, but we will always be given their status of a refugee. And I consider myself so lucky that I was actually living in a country that hosted me and I was able to then immigrate to Canada and, and, and get a passport and then come to the US later and then get that passport. And so my path to citizenship or to some kind of um, belonging is much different than what you know Syrians or Palestinians or Ukrainians are experiencing and just that feeling of I, I don't know appreciation and just pure pure luck um I, I knew that I wanted to somehow give back and and, and, and support um, any organization that supports refugees because it's never their fault that they had to leave their homes it's never their choice none of us can choose where we're born right some of us just get lucky and happen to be born in a country where there is no war or there is no violence going on. And so supporting an organization like Karam Foundation is so great. What advice would you give to someone thinking of starting a business in the food and snack industry? I know you kind of touched on like having the consumer in mind and doing something that has like a purpose. Um, can you give any words of wisdom there? Yes. I mean, if you want to be in the food space, first of all, whatever it is that you create has to taste good. I know the functionality right now in the food space is so big, yet I'll try something. Sometimes I'm like, I, I would never buy this. Like I would never buy this just because of its functionality. And even though consumers do value functionality, will they buy it again? Will they buy it a third time or a fourth time if they don't actually enjoy the taste when they can get this function some other way, potentially? Um, so one of the things that comes to mind is like the alternative sugars, whether they're artificial or natural alternative sugars, like a stevia or a monk fruit, even though they satisfy some needs that customers have to potentially lower their sugar intake, 
you know, they cause some other issues and a lot of people don't like the taste. And so I just, I just believe like a personal belief, but, but I think a lot of people would tell you this or much smarter than me that make sure your product tastes good. Um, but I can't emphasize enough how important it is to know that your product is going to be in demand. And so really doing your homework upfront and creating a brand that speaks those values, you know, from the beginning is really important. It's, it's the foundation, I think, of everything. You mentioned there's a new product coming out soon that w- I'm excited to see what it is. You left us all hanging, <laughs> no clues or anything. Um, but apart from that, is there an- any other plans you have to grow Magic Dates, whether in the short term or the future? Can you tell me a little bit about like what your ultimate goal for the company would be? Yeah, I think we have an opportunity to really share you know, more about um, the Middle East again. So I think it could be potentially product, more products that are date-based or other snacks that are using other ingredients that I, that I grew up with um, that would also still speak to our values of being a dessert alternative, uh, something with no added sugar um, that really gives you that satiation, um, but still being you know, better for you and good for you. So you know, we have something immediate in the pipelines over the next couple of uh, months, but then also long-term I think you can really expect more Middle Eastern specialties and delicious things from us. And when you're coming up with these new ideas for products, is it like, are you just coming up with them by yourself or do you like collaborate with your team? How, how does that come about? It tends to be a lot of my mind is I'm really trying to do a lot of uh, different types of things to not have my mind be so active all the time. <laughs> and one thing I'm doing right now is called NSCR, which is um, no uh, deep breath non-sleep non-sleep depressed nsdr so non-sleep depressed which is i guess like a form of meditation where you're kind of like body scanning but with that being said there there are all like these ideas that i want to create but they always stay in business execution trumps ideas and so i keep them in a back pocket and then share them you know with the team and, and, and talk about them and share them with all so like family who are committed to like our product and have been fans of the product for so many years and once we actually get serious about developing our product, we'll do a little bit more um, surveying and testing with our current customers because they're going to be the most important. I can't wait to see what else comes to be for Magic Dates. You ship across the U.S., right? We do, yes. Nationwide free shipping. And we have four, you know, four pack samplers on our website. So that way you can try our best sellers before committing to anything. Super convenient and available. I would love to close out by asking you to provide a piece of advice for the audience. Has there been a memorable moment in your career journey where you learned a valuable lesson on entrepreneurship? I think one of the biggest lessons, because it encompasses so many mistakes (laughs) that I've made, is trying to do too much too quickly. And it was ultimately, you know, I'm not going to say disaster, but it was just a good learning lesson because if you're not ready for that from both a skill level and then, you know, to financially support that kind of growth or expansion, um, then failure is inevitable. And so for me, I think there was a little bit of naivety there on what is the best go-to-market strategy. So my advice would be, you know, to myself, maybe back in the day would be instead of trying to expand widely too quickly is to actually focus more narrowly in a specific like geographic area, let's just say, and really focus on building up, whether it's that channel, that store, that product, whatever it might be, and then focus on the turnover, so the velocity, so allowing the product to actually move quickly and for people to buy more, more of it rather than trying to expand 
you know, all over the country, let's just say, and spread ourselves thin. So basically go narrow and deep rather than wide and thin. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a favorite um, Magic Dates flavor? I know that's like asking you to pick your favorite kid, probably. (laughs) I don't have any kids yet, but I'm sure that would be very hard to do. Well, we have seven flavors and the Choco Coconut Cookie has been compared to an Almond Joy. It's just a better for you Almond Joy because there's no refined ingredients, you know, no Mm -hmm. flour, um, nothing. So that's been a popular one. It's one that I'm enjoying a lot lately. So I kind of rotate between flavors. So that's the one I'm enjoying right now. The lemon flavor in the uncoated variety, our lush lemon bar, um, is super unique. So that balance of sweetness and tartness. If you like lemon bars, I think you'll be really pleasantly surprised with the lemon. I think that's my baby. <laughs> <laughs> how long do you know how long it took you to like develop each flavor from like the initial test phase to the final product? Probably a couple months, like two, mm-hmm. two, three months or so, just because I had developed multiple flavors. So we had a bunch. So this is a really kind of terrible statement, but like when they say kill the baby, so we've had to like kill a bunch mm-hmm. of flavors basically, but I think I developed 12 or 13 flavors initially, and then we were going to launch with four, but we launched with three. So the three varieties that don't have chocolate on them, um, the salted walnut brownie, coconut cream cake, and lush lemon bar, which by the way, those were not the names when we launched because we Mm -hmm. rebranded recently. Um, And yeah, so so it was just me testing in the kitchen. As I said, I have a strong connection to food. I've been cooking for like 20 years. That was a really fun thing for me to do, the R&D process. Yeah. And I love how few ingredients are in the product. And then the packaging too is super pretty. The evil eye being a part of like Arabic culture. It's also part of Mexican culture. So I I love that. I have them everywhere. Oh my goodness. Um, I didn't know it was part of Mexican culture. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Call it ojo. And so I have like little pieces of jewelry with the evil eye that's like protects you from just bad energy and things like that. So yeah. So it's a a protecting um, symbol as well for Mm -hmm. you interesting it's it's the same thing in the middle east it's pretty cool is it also blue yes it is Mm -hmm. that's so interesting yeah that's really cool yeah (laughs) i i love that i mean it's such a universal thing that Mm -hmm. we can and and who knows where that i mean we can look at the history obviously of where that comes from but you just kind of realize that on a spiritual level humans are so similar even like across such different cultures right it's cool to find those similarities yes Well, Diana, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I would love it if you could let everyone know where they can keep up with you and Magic Dates online, on social media, and where they can buy your products. Yeah, so we share tons of updates and you can learn more about the product launch on our social media and that's Magic Dates Bites. And there's two S's there. And we're not super active on TikTok yet, but you can also find us there, Magic Dates Bites. And our website, super easy, magicdatesbites.com. Thank you so much to Diana for joining me on this episode and thank you to everyone listening. I hope you join us next week for a new episode of Office Chats. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.